abundant in volume yet scarce, soothing and relaxing yet bearing a devastating force. Defies the laws of physics and it can heal as much as it can harm. It is the source of life. I'm Idan, and from Israel Newtech and PI Media, this is Waterline. Welcome back to Waterline. For the past several months, we were hard at work researching topics, interviewing people, and creating the stories for Waterline's new upcoming series. In researching, we found ourselves going time and again back to a book that, for us, became a guidebook. Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World by Seth Siegel, was published in September of 2015. Launched on the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and the Washington Post's bestsellers lists, it was called by the former New York City mayor, Michael Bloomberg, an essential reading. The book tells the story of how the combination of technology, education, and smart governance enabled a country in a semi-arid region to thrive. Put plainly, Israel's natural water resources supplies it with only half of what it uses annually. And yet, Israel is a self-sufficient country with a booming economy and it is able to address its neighbor's water needs as well. In September of 2017, A week shy of its second anniversary, I had the chance to interview the author, Seth Siegel, during Watek Tel Aviv Convention and Trade Show. Segments from our conversation were brought in several episodes in our first series, and I'm happy to bring to you today the full interview. One can assume that a book about water, being the natural resource it is, might be written by either an engineer or a hydrologist, because... Who else will find this fluid topic so fascinating? However, once you read this book, you realize that that is not the case. I'm probably best described as a liberal arts major. I have no skills whatsoever involving anything technical. Even though I had a wonderful and successful business career, uh, I have to make a confession, which I don't know I would have made during the career, is that I'm actually, uh, to use a word not often heard, I'm actually quite enumerate. Uh, which is like the numbers equivalent of illiterate. Uh, I get uh, very tense if I have to do anything more difficult than simple uh, one- or two-digit uh, arithmetic functions, and, uh, and I have no technical skills or abilities whatsoever. The book, uh, Let There Be Water, uh, has all of two or three mildly technical paragraphs, and it's a family joke because I wrote the whole book in about the same time as it took me to write those three paragraphs. And I, had a, well, I, I hired a tutor to explain to me how simple things work. And one of them even said to me, I hope you're kidding me that you don't understand this yet. So the book is, uh, is not the, uh, I'm, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a hydrologist. I have had the great joy of learning a little bit about those spheres. But the book is written as, as sort of a story and a policy book. Uh, although I do include a lot about how the technology uh, has benefited the world. You said liberal arts. You are a, a lawyer. By, well, by, by training and trade. Well, I'm a lawyer who practiced for only five or six years. I discovered quickly that I didn't enjoy the idea of a world in which I win and you lose. And I find my, found myself envying my clients who were in the business world. And it seemed that business people had the wonderful opportunity to uh, make things work and work together with other people for the benefit of kind of to use, um, after I just said I'm enumerate, uh, to make the world one plus one equals instead of two. When you're in business, uh, it's one plus one often equals three. And law, it's not plus, it's usually minus. So I, I wanted to leave the law and I envied my business clients. And then one day I got a business idea mm-hmm. and I quit my law job and uh, <clears throat> I got extremely fortunate. The business grew to be a, a worldwide company. Uh, a company that I started with a partner and uh, grew to be a worldwide company. And then at still a fairly young age, I mean, not, not, not like Israeli tech young, but still at a fairly young age, I was able to uh, uh, sell and, and then change my life uh, direction and focus on policy matters that I cared a lot about, Middle East affairs, national security affairs, 
and water. What made you embark on this? I think I can call it a whirlwind, <laughs> if I may. Yeah, well, it was an accident. Um, what happened was uh, I went to a talk at a foreign policy think tank in New York, of which I'm a member. It's called the Council on Foreign. <clears throat> excuse me. It's called the Council on Foreign Relations, and um, the speaker there was not as sometimes you have these things some wild environmentalists talking about the end of the world or, you know, gloom and doom type of report. He was a very matter-of-fact fellow. He was a retired U.S. Air Force general who now had a fairly senior job in the U.S. government and national intelligence agency. And uh, his agency's job was to um, make predictive reports for the president and senior members of Congress uh, and to tell them what was happening in global environmental issues. And their conclusion after a long study was that uh, by the year 2025, 60% of the world's landmass, over a billion people directly and billions more indirectly, would find themselves in a water-scarce environment, including, by the way, a large part of the United States. And I left the meeting. You know, you, you hear a lot of things. You read, newspaper, you read newspaper articles. You hear things on the radio or TV. And I don't know why, this just stuck with me. I went back to my office, I started reading about it, and I was just curious, where, where is all this going to go? And this went on for months, actually. But up, up until that point, you you were just an end user of a system. Right? Yes. That's you were at the end of the tap. I've never thought of it that way before. That's perfect. Yes, I would turn on the water uh, in the shower or in uh, the sink and uh, and would make it work. I didn't think a lot about water, although I have a recollection that somewhere along the way, I was interested in in water, but it was too complex for me. You know, I mean, I, I think I thought in college years of taking some type of hydrology class, but it had too much engineering in it, so it, it didn't work out very well for me. Well, it's a full, full circle. You got to it eventually. Yes. So you started reading and? Well, I started reading, and what um, I was, maybe because this is the businessman's mentality, I was more interested in solutions than, than wallowing in the problem. Because the problem is pretty clear, you know, we need we have a forty percent deficit coming in just the next few years in terms of the water that is available to the world, to the water, globally, globally, to the water that that will be needed. And actually, everywhere I turned, it was interesting to find how few examples there were of of high quality uh, water supply being managed properly. There were were places where that's done, but but few and far between, I might add. And so. I then started maybe, again, wearing, wearing the businessman's mentality. I started thinking, well, what are the solutions? And just about everywhere I turned, I found that the solution had either been invented in Israel or was one in which Israel had played a leading part. And I found that so curious because I, I have been to Israel. I know Israel a little bit, and I th think of it as a dry place. And I started then reading about Israel and water. And, you know, Israel is in the driest region of the world. Almost two-thirds of the country is desert. It doesn't rain very much. The third of the country that isn't desert is semi-arid. And so, therefore, you would think that particularly with a fast-growing population, in fact, I learned later that it's the fastest-growing population in the world since the middle of the last century, and uh, as a, on a percentage basis, not on total uh, uh, people, and that it's also the uh, of a very, very dynamic economy, which also is usually a predictor of water problems, or at least water usage. I thought to myself that, that Israel should actually have water problems, not be water solutions. So I, I started digging into this, and I wanted to know what was it that Israel did and what, how many of these Israeli solutions were, were at play around the world. And that led me to writing some articles, and, and then the idea hit me. Well, you know, since there was, I looked for a book on the subject, but there's no books out on it, not in Hebrew, not in English, not in any language. And uh, I thought, you know, I've, I've written a bunch of articles. I've never written a book. It might be fun to just try writing a book. And you became an advocate. I mean, for the second time in your life, but this time <laughs> a, a water advocate. Very, very much so. Very much so. One of the other things I do a lot of is I spend a fair amount of time in Washington, D.C. with uh, elected officials and senior staff. And um, I, I'm, a, I'm not a shy person and I, a person who, who kind of gets very bubbly about my enthusiasms. And while I was mostly talking to these uh, senators and congressmen about uh, Middle East affairs, national security affairs, and so forth, uh, as I learned more and more about water, I talked more and more about water. And I must say, I was shocked 
at how little our public officials, smart people, hardworking people, I'm not one of these people who's cynical about elected officials. I admire them and appreciate them very much, actually. I was shocked at how little they knew. And, and I began to see that people know a fair amount about energy, but the next resource of importance, no less important, but you know, side by side with it would be water, I suspect, and how little they knew about water. Why is that? How, how come humanity knows so little about water? You know what I think? I mean, I have a theory about it. My theory is, is that because it's been, a, it's been a resource provided mostly by the government and the private sector doesn't have an opportunity to play the valuable educational role that it often does, whether in the U.S. through campaign contributions, through inviting people to their conventions and so forth, through having advanced communication strategies and public relations strategies. It seems to me that the water universe are very well-meaning and very nice water engineers or civil servants who don't have the same mentality of, of educating the public. And also, because of the fact that water comes from the government agencies, which aren't very good generally at public relations anyway, the public would not want to hear that large amounts of the tax dollars being spent for these agencies are being spent on communications, whereas a private company can spend their money any way they want. Mm-hmm. whether it's for carbon fuels or alternative fuels. Also, there are all kinds of advocacy groups that talk about new energy sources, but there aren't a lot of advocacy groups that are very well-funded, that's a key thing, at least not yet, that talk about water. I hope that will change now. Growing up in New York, the only time I ever saw campaigns that talked about using water wisely was during periods of, of fairly severe droughts. What's but, a severe drought for the East Coast? Okay. You know, a couple of years of diminished rainfall or, you know, such. But it's not like a Middle East drought. But, but even so, it wasn't a sustained campaign. And as soon as the drought was over, it, it sort of went away. And, and I think that there's a very big difference between inculcating in children from a young age, which is something I talk about in my book, Happened in Israel, inculcating in children through the educational process why a key part of being a good citizen is being a good water user, a smart water user, is valuable. And those are life lessons that stay with children when they become adults and they become parents. Whereas in America, the, at least not yet, the idea of water uh, behavior has not really been drilled into us. And even in California, where there was a multi-year drought, and there was not as much in the schools as much as there was sort of just in popular parlance as to how you'd be a better water consumer with shorter showers or less watering of your gardens and so forth. Now it's a year of good rain, and all those campaigns are gone. So so you can't really effectively educate people if you only educate them during times of stress. It has to be a consistent part of of thinking for people that, that being a good water citizen is also part of being a good citizen. So how do you come about the task of Of educating seven billion citizens who live in different cultures, different political climates. Well, just to make this as clear as we can, uh, there aren't seven billion people who need to be educated. A very large percentage of the world already lives with incredible water scarcity. This is not something that will magically appear in the year 2025, um, but rather this is something that's going to be rolling towards us with an accelerating level of misery. towards 2025 and beyond. And that's the date that the U.S. government projects as the date when this water scarcity problem will be uh, first felt as a crisis. Um, for those many people who live in places where there's a scarcity of water, they don't really need to be educated to hold back. They don't have the water to waste. It's in the more affluent societies where water is not handled properly. And let me tell you something. I just came back from Buenos Aires. I was I'm very fortunate to have the book coming out in many languages and countries. I just came back from the launch in, in Argentina. Argentina is blessed in much of the country with great amount of water. But because of that and because of the same mentality that water is almost a limitless resource like sunshine or air, there hasn't been a public education campaign, which has led to terrible wastefulness about water. It's led to a lack of public spending on infrastructure. And you know what? Lots of people there are now drinking tainted water, which needn't have been the case because they could have years ago put good systems in place. The public never got the idea that water should be metered 
Because if you don't account for your water, you don't know where it's being used. You don't know how to plan for it, forgetting about how to charge for it. And so the country is, it's a wonderful country. It's a great country. It's an advanced westernized country. And yet they treat water, even, even though it's abundant, in a way that is it's very much to their detriment. They are now beginning to understand this. Large parts of the country, geographically, are also now beginning to find themselves water scarce. In Argentina? In Argentina. How come? Because rivers get diverted, sometimes springs dry out, uses change, the climate is changing in places, and the population is growing. This pattern is changing the way people are living their lives. So the educational process will happen in part because society will demand it, because it will affect their economic interests. And actually, the best of all worlds, I suspect, is a world in which nobody really has to think about water at all because it's so well managed. You don't, you know, you have such an abundance of it. Everything's fine. But we're not there right now. We're actually going the opposite direction. So the story is a story of management? If I had to put it into two areas, I would say it goes to culture and it goes to pricing. And both of those are equally important. And I would say on both of these, as I point out in my book, among the many things Israel did, there's no one special thing Israel did. It's a many many special things Israel did, many small things and some very large things. When you have a culture that is water-respecting, you get a better outcome. When you charge a price for water, you get a better outcome. And I'll tell you why in the second case. In the first case, you get a better outcome because everybody sees it as part of their job. It's not just taking a shorter shower. It's also being supportive of proper water pricing, being supportive of having a meter in your home. It's supportive of thinking about how you can use less water if you're a farmer, selecting crops that are less water intensive or irrigation practices that are less water wasting. So that's the culture part. The economic part is that when you pay the real price for your water without subsidy, and the problem is everywhere there's subsidies, not in Israel, Mm -hmm. but almost everywhere there's subsidies in And so when people finally pay the real price for water, they act in rational ways that market economies always get people to act. So you take, if you're taking a vacation, you're going to look at the cost of flights. You look for a cheaper alternative. If you're going to drive somewhere and you have to rent a car, you're going to factor into it. If the prices of, of gas is high, you'll factor into the, at the cost of gas. If you're buying a shirt, you'll, you'll decide which shirt to buy, not exclusively on price, but in part because of price. And so what happens with, with any resource is that once there's a price to it, you start looking for alternatives. Now, there is no alternative to water, you people will say, but there is. What is the alternative? Technology. I, I can't drink technology, can no, I? I can use less water by using technology. Instead of flooding a field as a farmer, I can use drip irrigation and use less than half as much water. But if the water is free... Why would the farmer spend even five cents on putting in irrigation equipment that saves water? Once you pay a real price for your water, then you say to yourself, oh, well, if I could use irrigation equipment and use half as much water but save a little more than half, then on an economic basis, it makes all the sense in the world to do that. If I'm a homeowner and there's a leak in a hose, I will make a decision to say, Well, if there's no charge for the water, I will never call the plumber to have it repaired. Never. I will never go out and buy a new hose because the water is free. Let it leak all day, all night. I go off for a two-week vacation. Let it keep leaking while I'm away. You say that and I'm cringing. <laughs> But it's true. And yet, if you pay for it, then you make an economic decision. Now, if it takes $500 to repair it and, it's, and the leak costs you, you know, $100 a year, then you may not do it. But at some point, you say to yourself, well, this is the right moment to do it. Not because you're a good citizen. I argue that just making people good citizens is not going to get you the right outcome. You have to charge them for it, and you have to teach them why it's in their interest. The, the, there's a lot of water, obviously. The problem is most of the water is not usable. It's not usable because it's salty, or it's not water usable because it's not salty, but it's highly polluted, or it's not salty and it's not polluted but it's far away from where people need to use it or could use it. So although we are the water planet, it doesn't mean that we are able to use most of that water. Now, the great thing, and a lot of this comes out of Israel, the great thing about today is that now we know how to clean that water. We know how to clean the water completely. In fact, 
I just uh, was at a conference at Columbia University a few weeks ago, and now they're even talking about the byproduct of cleaning that water is that you can extract all the gunk that's in that water and that there's gold in that gunk. There's stuff you can take out of there, even out of the sewage, the stuff you flush down the toilet. There's nitrogen, there's potassium, and there's chemicals that actually have value that could be removed and and reused, which has never been the mindset. It's always been thought of as a burden rather than an opportunity. And I think, once again, this this is the essence of how putting a price on water will help us do this. Because once there's a price on water, people want to figure out ways of not just using it better and smarter, but also getting resource recovery. So the key answer for all the questions that you're being asked is technology? No. No, 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 no. No. Price, governance, culture are absolutely essential. If you don't have smart, good governance, if you don't have good rules of the road set— Either you're going to give the farm away to, to some corporation or you're going to end up slowing the process down so terribly that you're going to get, dig, dig a hole for yourself. Let's talk about governance for oh, a moment. Okay. Let's take the U.S. Okay. Let's take um, a sub-Saharan country. Okay. And Israel. Okay. You would agree with me that the way the approaches are completely different. Completely different. But they all will suffer from the same shortage in, in clean, safe water. No, because look at Israel. Israel has no shortage of water. That's why I wrote this book. The U.S. has shortages of water. Is it due to governance? In part, yes. In part, yes. Like, for example, Israel makes a decision to unify its governance in the largest governing body possible. They basically have a complete watershed process. mentality, which is we have only a few sources of water in Israel, they say, a few rivers, one lake, some aquifers, and we're going to manage that water intelligently. Now, this is before Israel begins manufacturing water with desalination and, and the use of treated uh, wastewater. What's fascinating is that as a result of that smart governance, Israel's had extraordinary outcomes. Now, what happens in America? We don't have one watershed management. If I would say to you, I mean, I know we're on a podcast right now, so I can't hold up a map. But if I would say to everybody who's listening, close your eyes and whatever country you're from, I know your podcast is listened to very widely. But if you're in the United States, let's say, close your eyes and imagine where Florida is or imagine where California is or imagine where, you know, New York is or Texas. It wouldn't be very hard for you to imagine that. Likewise, no matter where you live, you could pretty easily figure out the political boundaries. If I were to say to you, now close your eyes and imagine where the water sources are, I wonder how many people could identify the location of rivers. Even in, even in Israel, where it's a small country, I would bet that very few people could, could tell you where the location is of most of those rivers. And that's surface water where you can see, not the groundwater, it's, it's called uh, you know, aquifers. where you can't see it. It's really a fascinating thing that we have trained ourselves to think in a political dimension about boundaries, whereas we would have served ourselves far better had we divided the world into watersheds and we managed the water that way. Now, what's the problem you wanted to say about the United States? There are thousands of water authorities, not across the U.S. alone. There are thousands just in the state of California. There are thousands just in the state of Texas, not one for each watershed, but one for each irrigation district, one for each flood district, one for each water district, one for each utility. So, so you would have, let's say, in one area, three different bodies, one dealing with the agriculture, one dealing with the domestic, and one dealing with the industry? Even more. I mean, within one specific address, yes, you could have two, three, four. Yes, of course. But That's crazy. It's, of course it's crazy. And it's worse. It's worse. You could also actually say that you could walk or drive a mile away where it's the same water source and you have the same duplication yet again. Or take the city of Chicago. It's the second or third, a third largest city in the United States. Chicago has a separation of their fresh water and their wastewater. Completely separate managements, different departments. It makes no sense whatsoever. So when you talk about governance, governance is a very important thing, although most people just take it for granted, oh, this is the way it's always been done. 
And in the sub-Saharan country? Generically, you know, you're talking about a less developed exactly. country. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, the images that a Westerner might have about Africa. Yes. Malnourished, no water, no agriculture, you know, a dire state. Yeah, so what happens there is water is very much left on an ad hoc basis because of the fact that they've never established, for most of their needs for governance, they've not established a strong uh, governing culture and system what happens is that the benefits that government can bring, which is a regulatory regime and standardization and so forth, those those things tend to, again, I don't want to speak generically because mm-hmm. there are some very good examples in Africa too, but, but it happens in less developed countries that they don't do this. One of the things that Israel does that I admire so much is that Israel has done a fantastic job at very long-range planning. Israel, a year or so ago, finished their 2050 water plan, already planning now for more than 30 years forward, as in the population will then will be how large? And if the population is that large, and where will they be living? And you know a lot of this because of housing patterns that they study, and they study the use of water through meters, which Israel is 100% metered by law. They have developed the ability to understand what they need. Now, further... They also understand that there'll be new technologies invented. So they develop a water plan for, for the year 2050 that says, okay, we're going to need this, this, and this, but we're going to assume that a technology will be invented between now and then that will address this particular problem. So the assumption is not that we're going to have less droughts or better years of rain. It, it's being calculated in the fact that, let's say, that there won't be any rainfall. Yes. But we're, we're, the contingency plan is that technology will get better. Exactly right. Precisely. And so when you compare America, which is a, you know, I'm an American. I love America. It's a great country. But in terms of our water governance, we've had this, this hopscotch sort of crazily put together water system and a bunch of water laws that were put together at a time when we were a small population but a vast amount of water, and there were economic interests in driving people to the West for to get it populated. So they gave out water rights to farmers and to miners that we are living with today because the farmers and the miners, they become inherited rights. They weren't just... And, and so we actually incentivize... You know, back on the topic of governance in the United States, not only is there multiple authorities in a single place, when is the utterly the definition of insanity? We encourage farmers to grow cotton, the most water-intensive of crops, in places where cotton shouldn't be grown, like the desert in Arizona. Why? Because the grandfather or great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather of that farmer got water rights back then when there was virtually nobody living in Arizona. Now, why would that make any sense? That farmer, he or she has a choice. Use that water, and if you go three consecutive years without using your full allocation, they take it away from you. You are incentivized to To waste waste as much water as possible. A farmer finds himself in a use-it-or-lose-it approach. So that's another form of failed governance as far as I'm concerned. But let's talk about cotton for a second, okay? okay. It, it has a lot of derivatives to it. You, you make yep. cottonseed oil. It drives other parts of the economy. You say forget about cotton, go synthetic, or you say what? No, no. I say grow cotton intelligently. I don't want, I, I, this is not a, an antagonistic comment to cotton. No, God, no. I love cotton. I'm wearing cotton right now. I love cotton. No, 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 no. I'm saying grow cotton as intelligently as we can. It's as if we said suddenly the seed companies are going to give away the seeds for free and the fertilizer companies are going to give away the fertilizer for free. No, no. Water is a key input into the cotton plant. Charge the right price for the water and you will find farmers making technological choices I'm not suggesting they shouldn't grow cotton, although I will say to you that there are places where they shouldn't grow cotton that, because it just doesn't make sense to grow cotton there. After reading the book, I came to a conclusion. This is a compelling story about water technologies, a triumph over the desert. But this is a book about strategy. This is not a book about water. It's a book. Um, I have the Great honor. Um, I did about 220 interviews for the book. Actually, I did more than that. I interviewed 220 individual people, but I did almost 600 separate interviews. Um, 
Shimon Peres asked me if I would, uh, he was very kind. Uh, he was pr sitting as the president of Israel at the time, and um, I had a desire to interview him. It was a fascinating interview. It was supposed to have been a very short interview. It ended up going on for a very long time. He, he was having the time of his life, and I was no way I was going to stop this interview. Uh, when we finished, he asked me when the book is actually done if I would send him a copy, and it was a great, great honor to me that he read the book. And after he read the book, he got in touch with me, and what he said is that this is really not a book about water. He said, what is it? It's a book about a country's vision and a triumph over adversity. And I must say, I didn't think of it in those terms. And then I think that one of the, the book was fairly widely reviewed, and one of the smarter reviewers wrote that the book was really not about water per se. He said that the book is really about what happens when you have smart leadership, which I suppose is another word for management. He said that, that this is what happens when you have smart politicians who are looking far into the future and you have an engaged society. So the book is really about a triumph over adversity on the one hand and also about the incredible role of vision and leadership in governance. Water is a key input into, into food, fiber, energy. It's incalculably large part of our lives. The amount of water we actually drink during the day is the smallest part of the water consumption of each of us. And if we think in those terms, we think, if we think of it only as to the water that comes out of the tap, well, that, that's fine, but it really misses the point. And, and what's happening now um, is, is that corporations are beginning to think in two terms. First, in terms of the thinking about water as, uh, as an input but, and the PR value of being smart, good citizens. But some companies are actually becoming frightened. What happens if we're in a world where this deficit, this 40% deficit of the water we need and the water we have, starts getting worse than it is already? It's going to affect their ability to sell their products. So they're getting smart about it, and I think that those corporations hopefully will start talking even more about what they're doing in water. So this is, this is another facet of, of the price yes. you're talking about. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So, yeah. so it's making economic sense. Yes. The way that you, and we talked about it a bit when we talked about governance, it's something extremely centralized, the system, yet very fluid. The notion of how you manage your water sources, this is something that you look at as, as you said, you call it a gold standard. But not many areas in the world would be so fortunate, or you say, treat your wastewater, find the right way to desalinate, and you're on the right track? Okay. Uh, you asked me earlier what are some of the questions that I'm asked. And I think, under the great pressure of, of your piercing gaze, I fail to mention what's the comment that I get most during the question and answer period, uh, which is always posed as a question. And your phrase just now, using the word fortunate, provoked that memory. When people talk about Israel being fortunate in their water, or when they say that Israel succeeded in water, this is the part that drives me crazy. Israel succeeded in the water because, they say, Israel had no choice. Well, that's ridiculous. Of course Israel had a choice. Israel could have restricted the flow of immigrants, had less people. Israel could have made a choice to import their food rather than grow their food. Israel could have made a choice to have their religious people pray more for rain. Israel could be more like the Kingdom of Jordan, which is water-deprived and that they don't have a flow of water into most homes every day of the week. In fact, even in Amman, there's only two or three days a week, you actually get water flowing into your home. You have to save it in a cistern, a water tank, for the rest of the week. In other cities, there's no water distribution whatsoever, and you just get it from a water truck, or you have to capture it from one part of the season when it's raining and hope that it lasts you the whole year, which is the way it was like 200 years ago. So Israel had choices. What they did was they rejected the status quo, and they said, we want to be more like New York or London. If we want to be an advanced economy, we have to get on top of doing that. And because they came to conclude that there was no possibility that the existing water supply would be enough to fuel the growth of the society, both economically and in terms of population, that they dreamed of, they began planning as early as the 1930s on what they would need to do to develop their water resources. Now, to be crystal clear about this, 
It wasn't until after the state was declared in 1948 until the early 1950s that they really began putting real time and money into the idea of developing alternative water sources. But here's the secret to Israel's success. Two-thirds, or almost two-thirds, of Israel's total water supply is manufactured water. It comes from either desalinated water or reused wastewater. The great thing about the technology that we talked about earlier is that even in agriculture, there's all kinds of choices. Tell me what you're growing, and I'll tell you what kind of water quality you need. Are you growing hemp? You can have garbage water. Are you growing cotton? You can have garbage plus 2%. Are you growing strawberries? I want it to be as pure as the water I'm drinking. So tell me what you're growing, and I'll tell you what you should have. We can now, not, not we as an I, because I have no ability as an engineer, but, but society now has the capability of programming the water quality that you want to need. How, how wonderful is that? And, but the crazy part is that what we do in most of the world is we take our sewage, and in the advanced countries, we treat it so that it's clean before we dump it in the ocean or a river, but we dump it. The smart thing to do would be to clean it to as pure a level as even maybe purer than, as pure as rain, I call it. We can do that and reuse it for that. And then you say the, the burden on the natural water sources will diminish. Yes, at the very moment when the natural water resources are diminishing anyway, we have the opportunity to have this integrated water system. I mean, think about the Israeli system. In times of drought... When the natural water diminishes even more than it is, it's a very dry region, you get more desalinated water. In times of rainy seasons, you let your aquifers fill from the rain. You let your, the, the one and only lake Israel has, the freshwater lake, the Sea of Galilee, you let that fill. And you use less desalinated water. It's a perfect, incredible integrated system. That's why Israel's a success in water. You can pick up one lever and lower another lever and have more or less of one kind of water at any given time that you want. Now, Israel's made a decision to use no treated wastewater for drinking water. But in much of the world, that is not the case. And it will certainly not be the case 10 or 15 years from now. Many parts of dry parts of advanced societies will have no choice but to start using treated sewage for the drinking water. In, the, in Orange County, which is just south of Los Angeles, several mil, I think it's two or three million people receive their drinking water from what was treated wastewater. And they're still fine. Yes, and they're still fine because they're using very advanced filtration systems and they monitor it constantly and they're very much on top of what the people are drinking. So it's just a mental barrier. Yeah, you know what? We recycle all kinds of stuff. You know, you go to a restaurant, you don't think twice about using a fork that somebody else just used. I mean, not just used. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go into a restaurant and, and, you know, the waitress says, oh, sit here, and they leave the fork and the knife there, and you get to reuse the fork and the knife. That would be kind of disgusting. But we don't think twice about We don't go to the restaurant and say, you know, I'm going to bring my own knife and fork. Or did you do your dishes? Yeah, I mean, we just assume that, that's in a sense a recycled fork, you know, and, and we're very comfortable with that. I think the same thing will come to be the way people could think about water. But Israel made a decision years and years ago in the 1950s that people will feel psychologically uncomfortable drinking treated sewage water, although um, there was a short episode when Israel did take a small amount of treated uh, wastewater and put it into the general water supply. No one knew. No one knew. No one knew. Is there going to be a next big revolution in water, or was it always an incremental thing? It's, it could be both. Um, the incremental piece is that an ever more energy-efficient use of technology will be happening. That we're seeing that all over the place, where the energy cost input into whether it's desalination or wastewater treatment, almost every year you're finding a yet better way of using these technologies. So that's the incremental piece. The revolutionary piece is one is process-driven and one is technologically driven. But we'll see how these things develop, and I want to share them with you. The first one is the idea that we have a lot of water in our atmosphere. You know, even in this very dry studio, there's a lot of 
moisture content in the air. And in fact, by the way, if we went in July to the desert at 12 noon, there still is a fairly significant amount of saturation of the air. You wouldn't be able to, to breathe it if it, it, it was not. That's why when you breathe in and breathe out, the, the exhalation is, has vapor. That's the water. Uh, the lungs help filter that. So there's a lot of water in, in, in just in the air everywhere. Well, at nighttime, the air gets cooler. It gets even more moist. Well, there's an Israeli and, and some other place in the world also ideas that are out there now, actual machines that are being field tested that are atmospheric water generators. And if those work and can be worked on a energy-efficient model, that will be a revolution in water. Because what will happen is that water is as clean as water can be. It's, it's the purest of pure, clean water. And if that happens, that will be a fascinating next-step development. It will mean that in the poorest of poor countries, they can have the same quality water you can have everywhere else. It means that you can put on the roof of your house, this water generator, you could turn it on or it could go on automatically at sunset every night. By morning, you could have hundreds of liters. Hundreds of liters? I was about to ask well, you how much. It depends on the, size of, it depends on the yeah. size of the device. But you could certainly have, without question, many, more than you'd need for your morning shower, your morning coffee, and all that. Surely, you could have all that easily. But you could have it on an industrial scale as well. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a, like a large apartment building. And that would be a, a game changer because you wouldn't need all that, you know, intercity plumbing and piping and all that. So that's that would be a revolution. The other great revolutionary technology, which is very, very early, is there are some researchers, and I just was down in their laboratory down in, uh, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, at a university called Nova Southeastern University, where they're developing a concept whereby making a very small change in the temperature of offshore water, in this case the seacoast around the Mediterranean, they believe they can trigger a rainstorm. And also during a rainy season, produce more rainfall, which was the sort of the old idea of uh, cloud seeding, which Israel was a pioneer in the 50s and 60s, which I also mentioned briefly in the book. And these ideas of atmospheric water generation and this sea-triggering uh, rainfall I don't talk about the book because I thought it was just too too far out there mm-hmm. to be practical. But either of these could be revolutionary. The, the, and then the process transformation that I think we're going to see, in since about 1900, the idea in water treatment and water usage has been big, big infrastructure, big centralization. And this was all possible at a time when cities had land to spare. Now cities are overbuilt. Real estate values are enormous. And I think you're going to see a new trend now towards decentralization of desalination plants, decentralization of wastewater treatment plants to smaller units that can be either embedded in the basement of a facility or in the side of a building and so forth. And that's going to be a very smart next step that we're going to start seeing, I think. And Israel leads the way in that as well. In your book, you go into this discussion of the triangle of Jordan, Israel, and the Palestinian Authority. But you can think about the same regional solutions for, I guess, the Saudis and the Iraqis and Iranians that, you know, hold the, the other side of the, the Persian Gulf, or or talking about sub-Saharan countries. How do you make this How do we make going tra- from politicians through regulators to regionalism? Ah, yes. Yeah. So, so the, the, the word that professors use and diplomats use is transboundary water. If it's difficult developing water issues within a country because of politics and economics and historical interests and so forth, it's all the harder in a regional setting. Add to that stresses of greater population, a desire for more exports, and less water flowing. And you have something very combustible. One of the themes I have in my book is that water has often been a source of conflict, but that we see with Israel that water can also be a source of conflict resolution. I use a phrase in my book, hydro-diplomacy. And hydro-diplomacy is the idea that water and water technology can be used to open doors and build relationships. Whereas in much of the world, what's happened is that people who are upriver of another party start damming that water to the detriment of the party downriver. Now, if it's within one single country, well, there's a legal system usually, or there's a dictator usually, that will resolve the issue pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. What happens is when it's transboundary water, you add into the already difficult mix 
the sometimes the antagonisms of neighbors to each other. So, for example, I mean, this is not necessarily antagonist, but Turkey is upriver of Syria and Iraq on the Tigris and Euphrates river system. Well, that's going to be a problem because Turkey is growing. They need more water, and they're going to use more water. Or the Nile River. In 1922, the British, who were the imperialists, decided that Sudan and Egypt would be the only takers of the Nile River water. But there are many other countries that are along the, the river system. Ethiopia is importantly along the system. They have a population equal to Egypt's, touch more. And they are, have been a very poor country, and they have a desire to now break out. They need water to do that. And they're upriver of Egypt. If they start taking large amounts of water out of the Nile, well, then you would think that this will be a crisis for Egypt. And it will be in current terms. I mean, they're actually, at one point, they said they would go to war with, with Ethiopia over this. So I'm just trying to frame for you how, how greatly difficult this issue is that, that you raise in this transboundary water. But here's the answer. The answer is that war and conflict is so much more expensive than is the smart approach. And that's, again, I go back to what Israel has done. I mean, think about this. Israel not only provides a self-sufficiency in fruits and vegetables for its own population and on-demand, high-quality water, Israel provides more than half of the water that the Palestinian Authority provides to the Palestinians in the West Bank. It provides a significant amount of water to Gaza. It provides a very significant amount of water to the Kingdom of Jordan. So it is, it is exporting water, and it's only able to do that because it's used smart technology. Were it not for that, Israel would be in a battle with the neighbors over water every day. It's a fascinating and exciting thing. It changes the dynamic of the region. And I'm going to make the argument that rather than fighting over water, whether it's one state to another, there's opportunities now to start thinking about water in a completely different way by adding technology. Now, there'll be a cost to this, an economic mm-hmm. cost to this, but there's an even larger economic cost to war or dislocation or poor quality water that affects people's health. But you're not talking about the political costs. You're not talking about uh, ethos costs. You're not talking about the fact that each nation has its own identity and you know it is what it is, and conflicting uh, ethos or narratives, especially when it comes to the Israelis and the Palestinians. Yes, but but think about this. You know, and you're asking you know me, the listeners, to to think reasonably about something that you know is extremely emotional. It can be emotional, but we also, over time, we can turn this into a resource that's just an input. If we're smart about this, I think that you're right. That right now. There's a lot of tension about water, if we're focusing only on Israel and the Palestinians. But just you know, forget about the Israelis and the Palestinians. Yeah. Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and Iran. Yeah. Okay, they all suffer from the same problem. Yeah. But the Iranians and the Saudis, you know, you won't be able to put them next to each other in a round table let's, to deal with the so problem. So let's, let's talk about the Saudis. The Saudis uh, have a very fast-growing population. Mm-hmm. They get some rain, but... They're mostly living off of an aquifer called the DC aquifer that filled, you know, like all these aquifers did very, very long time ago. And it took a very, very, very long time to fill it. They have crazily overpumped the aquifer. They share it with Jordan. Jordan has about 10% of it. They have about 90% of it. But you hear what the Saudis did? They started growing wheat in the desert. Do you know how much water you need to use to do that? Almost as cotton? <laughs> yeah. I mean, crazy. And, and the excuse they gave was they needed to be self-sufficient in food as a national security issue. Okay, look, I don't agree with that. That's crazy. Who's not going to sell wheat to the Saudis? I mean, mm. really now. They have all the, all the money in the world. Who's not going to sell them? But let's say that they're right about that. Okay. They also sell wheat for export. They don't anymore, but they did. How crazy is that? Well, it's part of their national pride, one would say. No, but it's, it, it's failed economic policy. If you want to diversify the economy, you don't have to diversify the economy that way. And if you're going to do that, then what you can't be doing is you can't be denuding water resources. Now, the flip side of this is that the Saudis have um, a very significant, obviously, amount of oil. And they desalinate water at a rate faster, I think, than any other country in the world. But they're using very old technology. 
So they're burning up a lot of oil and energy by they, doing so. They, they are burning up millions of barrels a day. Millions of barrels a day. I th- heard once that something like 8% of their daily output. Now imagine... It, just if, to make water. Just to make their own water. Now imagine if they could cut that, uh, cut that in half. Let's just imagine through conservation, through better governance, through better infrastructure, there's fewer leaks... Using just solar panels instead of... Is this the, the rumor is it's sunny and hot there sometimes. You know? Yeah. I mean, th- think about alternative energy. I mean, all those things. Imagine. But there are a lot of stakeholders there. You have a lot of stakeholders when it comes to water, when it comes to supplying them. You are asking for people to step aside for technology or to step aside for, for a better solution, a smoother. You will have a lot of antagonism. I agree with you. You will. You will. And that's what leadership is about. You know, when Israel made its decisions, clearly it was a smaller population. Than, but to every time you look at history and things are working harmoniously, it would be false. I'm speaking generally, not just in water. It would be false to think that you got to that point without conflict. And every time you have a technology that's a success, you'd be, it would be a historical revisionism to think that it was clear from the beginning that that technology was going to work. I love telling the story about how Israel came to do desalinated uh, water. And, and I tell the story in the book. Israel, uh, initially, uh, the first prime minister of Israel uh, was a believer in what he called in his diaries, and I had a chance to go through his diaries for this, he called desalting the sea. And he became fascinated with this idea of desalting the sea, and he sets up this very small, not very well-funded agency called Israel Desalination Enterprises now called IDE, by the way. That's where, that's where its name comes from. And, and it was an agency of the Israeli government, 13 engineers, and one young, very young guy who now is a very old guy who I had the chance of interviewing on a handful of occasions. And, um, and the old guy who I interviewed told me that he never believed for one second that Ben-Gurion was serious about desalinated water. He says he thought it was something he could just talk about when American and European visitors came to Israel so they could talk about it for either fundraising purposes or just for national pride. But the engineers sat down and they started developing ideas. And they came up with one idea and then another idea. And the next thing they know, they had a working model. And that's how desalinated water comes to be. It's a remarkable story. <laughs> it's a crazy story. And, and, and so here you have this situation where what Israel did was, if you think in sort of a casino terms, Israel placed its bet not on one and only one technology. It, historically, it looks like that's what they did. They were all over the place. They were trying lots of things. Some of them worked. The things that worked, they did more of. The things that didn't work, they did less or none of. And that included smarter, better governance, smarter regulation, and so forth. You know, in, 19, in the 1950s, Israel is a very young country. They passed a law that says that no water can point, pass from point A to point B without going through a meter. That changes the way people use the water. But that was controversial. Mm-hmm. They make a decision that the water shall be owned by the people and no private ownership of water. That was highly controversial. I mean, if you go back, which I did, and go back to the contemporary records of this, the Labor Party, Ben-Gurion's party, was able to ram this through the, the uh, parliament, but there was a lot of opposition to it. Yeah, but the, best, the opposition was in two morning papers, three evening papers, one for each political party, and that's it. Today you have Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and it's going to be a far more vociferous yes. battle no over doubt. it. No doubt, no doubt, which makes the leadership... More, more difficult, but it also means that you can use those same vehicles to explain more profoundly and more completely why it's more necessary. You can galvanize opinion quicker now than ever before. And with the size of the crisis that's coming and the examples that are coming every day, right? Rome has shut off the fountains for most of their day. The, the prices of food coming out of Italy is rising. France's wine region is having a drought. I mean, that's just in Europe, in water-abundant Europe. I'm a uh, very active uh, Twitterer myself, if I can put a plug, at Seth M. Siegel. I write about water scarcity issues around the world, and I never have to go more than a day 
without finding another example. Many of them in the U.S., but and but also in places that you would never ever imagine have a water scarcity issue. I'm an optimist by nature, but I think that that sooner or later people get to what is in their best interest. Politicians rarely will lead the way with that, and that's why Twitter and civil society and the rise of NGOs is actually more exciting and more important than we realize. Because the politicians will be glad to later get involved and take credit for it, we need to do what we can to educate them early so that they can be smart about these things at a time they need to be smart about it. We are meeting now after the, the convention of Watek. But what was extremely striking was the fact that the, the can-do approach, the optimism you know, of all the players around and the exhibitors in this which I find fascinating. I, I've never encountered such a thing in my life before. Yes. But this is the first time I hear anyone being cynical about it. This thing that you say that, you know, NGOs should push and then the politicians will come to... to, what? to but Watek is an example of... Watek is a perfect example. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I tell the history of how this came to be mm-hmm. in the book. I have, a, I have a short history about this. This man who actually now still heads the, the, the trade show you're talking about is a man named Oded Destel, who's actually a great guy. He's become a friend of mine. When Oded Destel was the trade ambassador to uh, Greece, he writes a memo in the early 2000s saying, I think there's something very exciting happening in the world of water. This is before there's awareness of water scarcity. He says there's something very exciting happening in the world of water, and Israel could be a world center of this water technology. And then as time went on, it took a few years, people came around to the idea of, wow, this could be interesting. Now, this is the first uh, Watek was in 2007. So here you have the fifth one. Well, mm-hmm. this Watek was, for me, the most exciting one of all because now you have Israel as a self-assured national water center. Now Israel is attracting visitors from all over the world, and this is only going to accelerate. So it's a very exciting thing. You walk into that hall and you see a quality of presentation where you know the companies are spending enormous amounts of money for this three-day trade show, but they're doing it like as if they're major global companies and at major important trade shows, which just suggests how significant this is. Just before finishing, I would like to know what is your next big triumph? <laughs> well, I don't know, I don't know about triumphs, but... I was raised with the idea of never looking back at what has been done that's, that's already been achieved and just looking forward at what has to be done. So, um, uh, so I don't uh, really spend a lot of time with that idea of triumphing. But, mm-hmm. but here, here's what I'll say is what I'm working on now, aside from going around the world telling what I think is an important story that we are in a period of water scarcity, but that rather than be depressed about it, we should be optimistic but only optimistic if we get going. We can, we can beat this problem with the use of smart governance, pricing, culture transformation, education, and technology. Um, so that's a very large part of my life's work right now. But I'm also working on another book which addresses the fact that because we live in a highly industrialized world and a world in which, um, to a degree that we may not even realize through pharmaceutical products and chemicals that are in our shampoos or soaps and other home products that we use, that we are actually polluting our water to a degree that we didn't realize we're doing. Now, there's no proof yet that any of this is bad for your health, but there's gathering information about this. And I think that because the technology exists that we can make our water pure and safe and healthy for everybody, that this becomes both a moral issue and a governance issue. And the book I'm working on now, which won't be out for another year or so, but the book I'm working on now uh, talks about exactly what we need to do to make the world um, not just water secure in terms of quantity, but also we make it water secure in terms of quality. So you became a chemist. <laughs> you know, and once again, it, the hardest of hard things is just as you said before, an engineer, uh, you have no idea. I, I've been sitting with college chemistry textbooks, and, uh, and it is harder than you can possibly imagine. I, I actually have this very bright young guy who I sort of have as my tutor, and uh, he's been walking me through all this stuff. So, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Did you ever imagine that you will become a, a waterman? 
no, no. And I, and I can tell you something. This is I've I've had um, I've had a bunch of different careers, all by design, never by default. And um, you know, I, I have a lot of interests. I've never imagined this would happen. I never imagined I'd be a book writer. Uh, I never imagined. Well, I've always enjoyed public speaking. I've never imagined I would be, you know, invited to speak at so many places around the world. Uh, but this is as satisfying as anything I have ever done, and more so. The opportunity to not only tell a valuable story about Israel at a time when Israel oftentimes does not have its story told in a positive way is very satisfying to me. And at the same time, being able to share with the world that there's a problem, but a problem that could be solved if we get going on it is also something that's very satisfying to me. So this is not about anything. Um, this is not about the commercial aspect of this. This is really a just a, the most joyous part of my life. I've had a long business career, which was wonderful, and I enjoyed mostly every day of it. But I was happy to leave it when I realized that there were lots of big issues that need addressing, and I wanted to use my business skills to start addressing it. So this is the most extraordinary uh, accident of my life. Never in a million years did I think I'd be walking around with a book that I had written. Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World, is authored by Seth Siegel and is available worldwide in 15 languages. Waterline is brought to you by Israel Newtech and is a PI Media production.